we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. Uh, reverse is just a nifty little word that we use to describe how we read and listen to Scripture together as a church family. So now we are in the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and we will read it on our own. We have kind of divided uh, the Philippians into 13 different weeks, so we challenge everyone to read a portion of Scripture of Philippians on their own. And then when you gather for Bible study or in small group, uh, you're learning together about those particular passages of Scripture in Philippians. And then when you gather for worship, you're going to hear uh, me or Pastor Chris or someone else preach from that same text. It's, it's literally a way to keep us all on the same page, and we think it's really, really cool. So with that said, we're going to read from Philippians. We're going to read the first four verses of chapter 2. Let's stand together and read these together. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this is your word to us. And we know that you give us understanding from the work of your Spirit. And so we pray, fill us with your Spirit today so that we can hear and understand and change and respond to your Word. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you remember last week, the challenge that Paul gave the Philippian church was to be citizens of heaven. Your primary allegiance is not to the Roman government, but to God's kingdom. And if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, that means you relate to the world in a very different way. And Paul was also beginning to acknowledge that from the very beginning, when the church kind of erupted in Philippi, they began to face opposition. Paul faced opposition almost immediately, but the church, even as it began to grow, began to face opposition. As you can imagine, as things were getting really tough for the church because they were followers of Jesus, they were now citizens of heaven, um, that there likely was tension in that church family. And so that's one of the reasons that Paul is investing in these kind of words to encourage them towards an extraordinary kind of unity, right? An otherworldly kind of unity. Remember, he said, listen, I don't want you to face opposition with fear, right? Last week we said joy in Jesus over fear. And so Paul is saying the only way that you can face opposition without fear is if you experience with one another an otherworldly kind of unity and love for one another. You have to stand together not on your own. And so Paul is going to take these next four verses. In fact, this most of chapter 2, which I'm telling you, um, he had his theme verse early on, for me to live is Christ, right? That was in uh, chapter 1, but 
when we get to these verses, particularly 6 through 11, it is the heartbeat, the very core of Paul's message to the Philippians as he points to Jesus. But he's going to start us off in these verses 1 through 4. And so let me just read this with you again. Verse 1, it says this, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? That last verse, um, remember, we, we all read translations. These are not the original words in the literal, literal original language. We're doing our best to translate these. And, and I would say that that last verse would want to continue with the same way that the previous verses uh, said it. So I would say this verse like this. Any comfort from His love? And have you experienced His compassion and tenderness? Jesus' compassion and tenderness. These are rhetorical questions for Paul. Paul knows the answer. It's like him saying it this way. Haven't you experienced encouragement from Jesus? Forgiveness of sin and restoration with God, being called a son and daughter. Have you experienced comfort from God's love in your life? Have you experienced fellowship in the Spirit? Haven't you experienced that? That you are now bound together in the Spirit of God. Have you tasted God's tenderness and compassion through Jesus? That's, that's the tone that Paul is taking here with this church. Haven't you experienced those things? And he's pointing back to the church's gospel experience when they first encountered and received the message of Christ, for God so loved the world, right? That there is a way through his death and resurrection they can be forgiven of sin and made right with their creator. He's pointing back to that experience. Don't you remember experiencing those things when you came to faith in Jesus? And furthermore, haven't you seen it in me? Paul, remember that last verse in chapter 1. He's saying, I know suffering is coming, but you saw how Jesus faced suffering and you saw how I faced suffering. And so this verse 1 is kind of a bridge to where he's headed. And so he's pointing back, you know, even by my example, you experience the gospel through me, my tenderness, my compassion towards you, my fellowship with you in the Spirit. You have tasted and known and experiencing these things through the gospel in Jesus, and you've seen it in me. And so Paul is saying in verse 1 is that these experiences and realities that the church has had in Jesus are a model and a catalyst for how they see the world and love one another. Paul is going to say those experiences that you've had with Jesus and you've seen modeled in me are a model for you and a catalyst for you to relate to each other in a very different, extraordinary kind of way. How many of you have either read or seen Les Mis? It's one of the greatest works of Western um, literature, uh, Les Mis, written by Victor Hugo. It tells a story of Jean Valjean. So Jean Valjean was in a French prison from childhood for stealing a loaf of bread. He is released at, when he is a, an adult in his 30s, maybe 40s, and he has not known the civilized world for a long, long, long time. No one has ever trusted him in his life. He has been known as a criminal just because he was trying to feed himself. And so he goes into this town, and he ends up uh, sleeping the night in a priest's home, and he ends up actually stealing the priest's silver 
and leaving in the middle of the night. Well, um, a police officer catches him, him, brings him back to the priest's house and says, is this your silver priest? I, I caught this criminal and he has stolen someone's silver. Is it your silver? And the priest says, yes, it's my silver. But I gave it to him. And the priest, after the policeman leaves, takes Jean Valjean and says, I have bought you back to God. Right? That was that catalytic moment in this man's life. His whole life, he had only known distrust. He had only known anger and unforgiveness and conflict all of his life. And here he experienced mercy and grace. Was he a thief? Yes. Did he deserve mercy? No. But this priest said, I have now bought you back to God. Go. But the point is, is that this this experience of mercy and grace totally changed the outlook of his life from that point on. I mean, if you know the book, you know the Broadway show, it changes everything. Even how he relates to his enemy changes. He now begins to adopt the same kind of life that this priest has showed him. He begins to extend extraordinary mercy and grace to the most unlikely people. Even the very person that was seeking his life, the rest of the movie or the rest of the show and the rest of the book. That catalytic moment and experience of grace and mercy changed everything for Jean Valjean. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul is pointing back to that catalyst, that moment of extraordinary grace and mercy that we experience in believers. And he says, if that's happened in your life, haven't you experienced Christ's love? Haven't you experienced his compassion and tenderness? Then let that be a catalytic moment and movement in your life to where you see the world completely differently. You look through at the world with a completely different lens and you relate and treat each other radically differently, especially those in your church family. That's what Paul is saying. Catalytic grace propels us to see the world with new eyes and love in new ways. That's what he's saying. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Then make me truly happy or complete my joy, it'll say in the ESV. Complete my joy. This letter's about joy. I mean, come on, for those of you who have your own kids, isn't there a lot of joy to see them grow up and to take new steps and mature? It brings us joy. We take a lot of pride in that. That's what Paul is saying. I want you to... Complete my joy. Give me much pride in you. How? Um, then make, my, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Working together with one mind and purpose. He's, he's pointing back to verse 27 of chapter 1. Let me just read that uh, briefly. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose. So he's pointing back to verse 27. And he says, I want you to agree wholeheartedly with one another. I want you to agree wholeheartedly with one another. I, I, I want you... 
um, to love one another. I want you to work together. I want you be, to have the same mind and share the same purpose with one another. Now, uh, this is more than just having this, an agreement or agreeing with someone on a particular topic. I mean, we can agree about stuff all day long and not necessarily help one another, right? So he's talking more, he's saying something more than just be in agreement with one another. Uh, early on in this pandemic, um, Lane Io came to Midweek in the City, and I was on stage with, with he and Brian Richardson, and he began to share his story um, about his pilgrimage on the Camino, Camino de Santiago. Did anyone see that by chance? A few of you did. It was incredible and very inspiring. The Camino de Santiago is a Christian pilgrimage with different paths, but one of the longest paths begins in France, and it's a pilgrimage to the supposed burial site of the Apostle James. And this particular path that, that Lane took was a little over 500 miles walking from France to the edge of Spain. It's an incredible, inspiring story, so much so I'm like, well, maybe I could free up some time and train and go do it myself. It's really cool. Um, or maybe I would just get blisters and not enjoy it. I don't know. Regardless, it was an incredible story. But he tells um, this whole story. But one of the things that stood out to me was this. He's that he said, along the way, you end up joining and partnering with people, two to three at a time. And you would just kind of converge, and then at some point they would go on their way, you would go on yours. Um, but sometimes it would just be one other person, and y'all would walk literally miles and miles and miles together. And for me, listening to that story and the way he spoke about those moments, those were the most joyful moments he experienced on this pilgrimage, is when that he aligned with someone else, and they were headed in the same direction together. They could walk together for miles. And in that process, he found his greatest encouragement. And he even said this, I discovered that I could walk a few more miles in each day when I had someone aligned with me headed in the same direction. That's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking just about agreeing about stuff, or theology, or knowledge. He's saying, I want you to wholeheartedly be aligned with one another. Are you headed in the same direction with one another? Are you helping carry the load for one another? Paul would, uh, Jesus would use a metaphor like this. Don't be unequally yoked, right? And so Jesus says, goodness, in my kingdom, I want you to be equally yoked. I want you to share the burden with one another and head in the same direction together. That's what Paul is trying to convey to this small church. As you face opposition, I know you feel the tension of, of, and fear of this opposition, the enemies that you're facing, but let me tell you, the, the, the best way and only way you're going to get through it is that if you align together and head in the same direction with one another, to share the load, to love one another, uh, to love one another and to work together with one mind and one purpose. That's what Paul is encouraging them to do. In the beginning of Acts, and in fact scattered throughout Acts, uh, much of the opposition described um, these early Christians. They didn't call them Christians. Y'all remember what they called them? Followers of the what? The way. Followers of the way that really conveyed this group of people that were 
not just an agreement together, but they were part of a movement together with one another, one accord, one mind, love for one another, headed in the same direction, aligned. That's what Paul is saying. Be equally yoked, aligned with one another. Harmony. That's what Paul's talking about. Harmony. Now, this is a very important thought. We are Americans. We are Westerners. We have really been great at developing individual thought, this perspective that we are individuals. Part of the the American philosophy is that we are individuals, right? Paul's not talking to individuals here. It's easy to take these passages of Scripture and just say, what do they mean for me? That's not a bad thing. But I want you to remember that, that Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to the church. These are words intended to encourage the, that local body of believers in Philippi. Not to be processed just as individuals, but for them to process it together and say, what does it mean for us to do this with one another? What does it mean for us to be aligned together? What does it mean for us to love one another? What does it mean for us to work together with one purpose? Not just my individual purpose, but what purpose do I share with the church? Of course, we know what that purpose is. The kingdom of God. You are citizens of heaven. You are not citizens of this world anymore. You're aliens. That's what Peter would say. You don't belong to this world anymore. You live for another kingdom. So how do we as a church align ourselves in harmony and head the same direction? Those are the kind of messages and prompting that Paul is trying to give this church, and it resonates with us today as a church. As a church. Listen, um, we must be the church together. We can't just passively receive the church. We have done an extraordinary job, not just this church, but other churches in the West, of providing you some of the most incredible, doctrinally sound programs that we can offer. But the church isn't primarily about you coming in and receiving the best that we have to offer, is it? Those are not bad things. Paul's not talking about that. He's saying, I want you to ask new questions about how you relate to one another as a church, not about what you can receive and what best benefits me, but about what do I bring to this church family? How, how do I align myself with what God is doing in this church family? How do we serve alongside one another? How do we love each other? How do we strategize fulfilling God's purpose in this church family? It's a radical different perspective from walking into a classroom or a door and saying, well, what am I going to get today? To, man, what do I have to offer my brothers and sisters and how can we coordinate with one another or be in harmony together to advance God's kingdom in San Antonio? That's different, isn't it? That's what Paul's after. That's what Paul's after. Verses 3 through 4. He says, now, these are all imperatives. These are commands. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. And then he says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. Paul is saying it can't be everyone out for themselves. How much you can get or receive. But we have to be about the other. 
and not, not the world. He's talking about the church here. We have to be for one another in the church. We have to be for one another is what he's saying. And we, that's battling a cultural norm, isn't it? Uh, even in, in Paul's day, maybe even worse in Paul's day. Um, everyone for themselves and their own interests. Right? They wanted to look out what they could get so that they could achieve their goals. And Paul is I'm asking you to think completely different. The gospel shatters that, that paradigm. The new paradigm is, how do I consider my brother and sister of Christ as better than myself? Or how do I walk away from this complete self-absorption and, and this, this drive to draw attention to myself all the time? How do I walk away from that and love my brother and sister and seek their interests and not just my own interests? That's just as cultural, counterculture today as it was back then. And that's what Paul is asking for. He's asking for extraordinary humility and selflessness in the church towards one another. Of course, he said it in several other different ways. In in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, he said it like this. So if we can get that on the screen. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. You see that harmony that Paul's talking about? That we are bound together, we need one another. And if that's the case, Paul is saying if that's the case, you have no reason to think you're better off than the next person. You have no reason to only consider your own interests because we are in harmony with one another. If we're only thinking about our own interests, then we're pulling away from the whole. And so Paul says, the reason I want you to be selfless, the reason I want you to lay down your self-exaltation and to begin to think about others as better than yourselves or consider other people's interests is because I want you to advance the whole in harmony so that you can stand against the opposition that you have faced, and advance the mission of God together. You've got to do that. You've got to do that. Extraordinary humility and harmony. And then in Romans 12, 10, I love this. I love this. Uh, and I'm just going to paraphrase it. He says, I want you to go out of your way to give honor to one another. Try to outdo each other in honor. Make it a competition. Make it a competition. Listen, Christian maturity, growing up in Jesus, is not measured in biblical knowledge or in attendance records. Christian maturity is measured by our love and extraordinary humility and an interest in someone else's good, primarily a brother and sister in Christ. What is their good? Remember what John the Baptist said? When he encountered Jesus, he said, he must, what did he say? Jesus must increase, and I must what? Decrease. Isn't that the heart of the gospel? When we grow up in Jesus, Jesus becomes more center. When he becomes more center, we begin to live out the same kind of life that he lived, pouring out our life for other people, others around us. And so 
Our lives move out of center. Jesus' life moves out of center. We decrease, He increases, and we begin to look out for the good and the interests of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means for us to continue to live in harmony and face opposition together. That's how we do it. That's how we do it, and that's how we overcome and withstand opposition together. A few questions I want to ask you. Do you have a person or a small group that you know you are aligned with and headed the same direction, advancing the same mission? I'm not talking just about sitting in a room and discussing passages of Scripture, although that has incredible value. That's how we listen to the the voice of God and move forward together. But do you have a small group or a person or a small group of persons to where y'all are really aligned with one another, headed in the same direction, sharing the load, advancing the mission of God in each other's lives? Do you have that person or persons that is investing in you in your interests, your spiritual interests, and in your dreams? Do you have a champion in your life? Do you have a group of people that will champion what God wants to do in your life? And that will spur you on. And sometimes it's direct and sometimes it's indirect. Sometimes they just model it for you. And you just see Jesus oozing out of their life and you're just inspired to live the way they live. And sometimes it's direct where they ask you really clear questions about how you are journeying in your own faith. Or they're they're reminding you of the promises of God or reminding you the kind of life that God's called us to live. Or they're reminding you of the mission that God has called us to live. Do you have that kind of person in your life? Are you that kind of person in someone else's life? where you are verbally and tangibly encouraging them, sharing the load, aligned with them, headed the same direction? Are you that kind of person to someone else? Well, if you're wrestling with trying to identify who, or that might be, or who I might, I don't know if I have someone like that in my life. Would be that, could that kind of take shape in your life? Could you give that some thought this week? Alignment? Would you think of maybe one or two names of people in your sphere that could really benefit from you investing and be interested in their good? How can I help them? How can I be their champion? How can I help share some of the burden that they're carrying? And may it be someone from this church family. That's what Paul was talking about. You, this church family in Philippians... Help one another, love one another, share the load with one another. Would you give that serious thought this week? If you don't have a small group and you're not part of a Bible study group where we really want those kind of things to take shape, you must get connected. Jesus doesn't give us any other way. We can't live in isolation and hope to grow up in Jesus. The only way we can face opposition, which oftentimes is the cultural attitudes and untruths of our world, is to be able to come together. You can't do that on your own. Find a Bible study. Find a small group. And if you need help with that, you can come talk to me. 
Um, there are plenty of people in this church family, ask someone that you trust, hey, which one do you go to? How do I get connected? But you must get connected in a small group. You cannot do this growing up in Jesus and being part of the mission of God on your own. Some of you are wondering, well, how in the world did I go about do this? I'm just going to, um, not the finding part, but how do you, how do you help people? How do you begin to make that transition of considering someone else's interests? I'm just going to share from my own experience, and I don't do this well all the time. I don't find myself to always be the most thoughtful person. It's something that I work on. What I mean by thoughtful is preemptively thinking about the needs of other people around me. Um, so uh, marriage is my experience, and, um, but I think this is pretty relatable to all of us. Uh, growing up in marriage, Anne and I have both learned to ask different questions about one another, not necessarily to one another, about, but about one another. And something that's been really helpful for me is beginning to ask the question, what does she need from me and how can I help? How can I take something off of her mental list without her having to ask me? Again, sometimes I do this really well and sometimes I don't do it well, all right? Um, but I think it's simple questions like that in your own life. If you could pick, um, if, if, if you're in a family, it's, you know, my spouse and my kids. That's where I start. Um, if not, it's, it's colleagues, and it, well, particular, not just colleagues, but also as there people in my church family, one or two people that I know I could ask of the same question. You can't do this for everybody, right? We don't have the energy to, to meet everybody's needs. But are there two or three people in your church sphere that you can begin asking how can I help them without them asking, what do they need, and can I take something off their list? It could be a spiritual list, but think, begin to think of your relationship with one another like that. I think that's what Paul was wanting us to do. How do we share the load? How do we share the load? And that helps us to consider some other people's interests. Have you ever asked someone what their dreams are? This is something else that Ann and I really have a lot of fun doing, is, is that we will just daydream about what, what life could be like for us in 10 years. What do we really want to accomplish? You know, you can discover the interests of others by just sitting down and asking them, you know, what are your dreams for your life? What are your hopes and goals? What spiritual goals do you have? Would you take some time this week to ask those kind of questions? Maybe even of your own spouse, of your own friendships. That's what Paul wants us to be more like. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your church. We are your church because of your son Jesus who died and rose again. We are bound together by your gospel. and We are also propelled by your gospel. Everything has changed for us because of the mercy and grace we have experienced through your son. Help us to live that out together. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.